So I yeah. hope readers understand that. I hope. And if they don't, fuck them. <laughs> well, if they got to the end of the book, <laughs> yeah. then the relationship is complete. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, if they're mad at that point, then like, great. You still read the whole book. This is awesome. I'm Alex Higley. And I'm Lindsay Hunter. And I'm, I'm a, a writer. writer but... Welcome to I'm a Writer, but today we have Mike McGinnis. Mike is the author of Fat Man and Little Boy. His fiction has appeared in the Best American Short Stories 2012, Unstuck, The Collagist, Pink, Hayden's Fairy Review, and many other outlets. His new book is Drowning Practice out in March of this year, and he lives and works in Iowa City. Welcome, Mike. Welcome, bud. Hi, thanks for having me. It's really exciting to be here. I feel like I'm a real person now. Once again, I'm a real person. <laughs> I've arrived. You are. I've, I mean, I've heard that about you, that you're a real person. I heard um, the opposite. So this is strange. I don't know. <laughs> I'm happy to talk to you because your book, I, I read it so quickly. I could not get enough of it. And I was telling Alex, I couldn't get it out of my head that the world actually isn't ending in November. Um, cause I found myself like walking through the days being like, eh, who gives a shit? Cause you know, like November's coming. And then I'd be like, oh my God, this is just a book. <laughs> this is just a- <laughs> it really like penetrated. And even now I have trouble like shaking it off. Um, which is good. Cause then when you remember, you're like, ah, huh, things are not as bad. You yeah. know, like I'm not going to be though? <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm going to delete that. I'm going to edit that out because things are pretty bad. Things are pretty bad. Um, anyway, that is all to say. Uh, it's such a great book. I absolutely loved it. Um, I can't wait to talk to you about it. Yes. Okay. Well, uh, as, as is custom on your program, I will now read a brief selection from the book. I'm going to read just basically the first few pages with some edits that like, if you pay really close attention, you'll notice holes. So don't pay super close attention. You'll have a better experience. Okay. I absolutely will not pay. Gotcha. Barely any attention. Thank you. Perfect. (laughs) Not everyone believed the world would end that year. There remained a few optimists, agnostics, and well-meaning liars who claimed it might endure at least a few months longer, possibly even forever. Until this question was settled, however, there would be little point in spending good money to repair or replace what was broken or used up, and least of all, what benefited children, who would probably never repay such investments. Public schools stopped buying supplies. In the unlikely event that the dream about November proved wrong, they would resume their purchases in December. Taxpayers would thank them for running a surplus. Maude attended a public middle school for reasons both financial and political, according to her mother. And though some dedicated educators now paid for necessities out of pocket, Mott's teacher was not one of these. Miss Rooney attended class each day dressed more or less for the part, but she rarely spoke and often took naps on her desk Her classroom was down to its last stubs of chalk among the long, the dozen long fluorescent ceiling lights that lit the children. Three always flickered and one was entirely spent. These bulbs would never be replaced. Erica Banach stood in front of the class, a piece of yellow notepaper stretched taut in her hands. It would tear if she pulled any harder. Her knees were covered in band-aids. They were shaking and so was her voice. What I think will happen in November That's the name of my report. I think that everything will be okay. When you hear the end of the world, you think about everyone dying. You can't help it, that's how you grew up. But there's another way to think. November might only mean the end of the world as we know it. Would that be so bad? Most people suffer for most of their lives. Most people live in India or China. If everything was different, some things would be better. Maybe in the new world, no one will be hungry. Maybe we'll learn to be nice, In conclusion, I think that's what will happen. Thank you for your time. A student in the front row raised his hand. Erica pointed at him, which meant that he could ask. What happened to your eye? Erica tore her paper in half. She didn't mean to do it. She only pulled a little harder. When you see a black eye, she said, you think of someone being hit by your father. You can't help it. But my father is a doctor and a good man. He delivered me himself. 
The children looked to Miss Rooney. Her head lay on her desk and she was covering her ears. I'll go next, said Molly Coriel. She walked to the front of the class. What I think will happen in November, everyone will fall down at the same time. If you're in the grocery store, you'll fall down in the fruits and veggies. If you're at your job, your face will fall down on your keyboard and spell a weird word. If you're at home in your bed, you won't fall down, but you won't get up either. Everyone will make a little surprised sound, like they just checked the mailbox and inside there was a letter from their friend. No one had any questions for Molly. She gave her paper to Mott and sat down. Miss Rooney sobbed once. What I think will happen in November by Mott Gable. I have asked myself 1000 times. We all had the same dream or close enough to the same. And we all know what the father said. The world will be over, forgotten, or maybe it's better to say never remembered again. My first memory is I am sitting on a checkered blanket in the park. My mother is scooping potato salad on my father's plate. He keeps telling her, a little more, please. Soon there's more on his plate than there is in the bowl. She's trying not to laugh. He keeps telling her, a little more, please. Just a little more, and I'll be satisfied. Finally, she can't hold in the laughter. He says, a little more. All of the potato salad is on his paper plate, and my mother is dying from laughter. Someone's blue frisbee settles on our blanket. No one ever came to claim it. So I still have the frisbee, and that's how I know my memory is true. Becoming a person doesn't happen to you all at once. It takes months or maybe years to learn your name. And then you have to remember it every day. The world has to do the same thing. It's lucky that when we're asleep, when we've forgotten we're a world, Australia is awake to remember. They keep us alive. When November comes and the world is what it is, we'll all forget our names together. Our bodies will still exist, but we won't use them anymore. They'll use themselves. That's it. I mean. <laughs> it's a great opening, Mike. It really it's... is. I've told you that already, but it's such a great opening. That opening uh, did a lot of work for me um, in practical terms because um, I, after after getting my agent, um, but before we sold the book, I rewrote just about everything pretty heavily. But that first chapter it's been revised. Um, the riff about like taxes and stuff that got added mm. relatively late, but like that first chapter basically never changed after I wrote it the first time, which is funny because it's like some of those characters you never really see again. Mm -hmm. um, it's not that it's tied that intimately to what happens later, but the tone that I got there was, was really helpful to me and was, was something that I think, um, convinced uh people that other parts of the book that were not in such good shape uh could be <laughs> so i think it, it probably i i owe those few pages uh everything roughly approximately the other thing that happens immediately in this novel other than the tone you know very decidedly being set is there's a kind of subtle and very effective world be world building being done by you um in a way that i found really interesting mike i want to ask you um you had the effect on me of it almost felt like in those old rpgs where like a character like will walk to a part of the map and the rest will like be grayed out as they walk to a part and like your focus becomes very tightly focalized on you know where the flashlight or the lamp is on the character and it felt like that to me as we're learning the world of Lid and Ma and David and their respective, you know, interiors. But then there's also this reality operating in the book, the, the reality of the dream for everyone. And so you had this kind of balance that you were doing where, you know, these are isolated people living in a world of like stark disrepair. And yet there's also this very large, like global kind of strange event happening at the same time. And I was wondering if you could just talk about balancing those two things narratively. Yeah. Um, so I feel like I should, I should back up for a second and like describe the actual premise of the book, which is like, sure. it's weirdly hard for me, but um, I'm, I'm going to do it. So the, the book is about uh, before the book begins, um, everyone has had a dream that the world is going to end at some point in November. They don't know exactly when or how, but they've been told that's what's going to happen. They don't know why uh, the person who told them was sorry, but they do know that it's going to happen. 
Um, and a lot of people on waking up from the dream conclude like, yep, this is real. We all had this same dream. So obviously that can't be a coincidence. We're all going to die. And then some people uh, don't uh, believe, but our protagonists do. And so there's a mother, a formerly successful novelist named Lid. And there's her daughter, uh, Mott, who is 13. And, you know, if, if life uh, went the way it's supposed to, she would just grow up and someday become a novelist because she admires her mother so much, or she would rebel and find something else to do. Uh, but she doesn't have time for either of those things. So she wants to write a book before the world ends. And uh, meanwhile, the ex-husband, uh, David slash Mott's father, he wants them to come home and live with him again. And he's a creep. Uh, so they run across the country sort of pursued by him, but he has access to like CIA stuff because he's a, he's a spy. So he is, is chasing them down to, to bring them to his house uh, for the end of the world. Um, and so the question is, will the book get finished before the world ends? And is there any reason to actually do that? Is <laughs> the other question. <laughs> Uh, it's the question I ask myself every day. Um, but to, so, so that's the, that's the, that's the big picture here. And, you know, it's interesting because I was writing this book in a lot of ways, more in response to the apocalyptic fiction genre as it exists in like film and TV and video games and stuff mm. than I was at how it exists in books, because there's more variety in books, but with the with the like big pop culture depictions, there's some pretty like stable elements. And one of the things that you'll find if you watch those movies, think of like children and men, you're going to have your like uh, montage where you're Anderson Cooper or Anderson Cooper stand in, depending on, on how they want to approach that question uh, just sort of like explains what's going on. Right. And you mm -hmm. see riots in China, you see people starving, in you know uh ukraine or or whatever right like you see all these bad things happening um and then it just kind of resettles on the main characters and it's a very cinematic approach and it is one that like wants to barge in on a book like this um partly because it's in response to that sort of popular cultural depiction but also because uh that's where the money is right is for me to write this book in a way that feels like it could be a movie um mm. So, so you feel that temptation the entire time. And for me, it's not that I'm against those techniques exactly, but they're not super book friendly. And I also was not trying to write something that had the, I'm, I'm not trying to put the world in this book about the world ending, right? Um, I'm mm -hmm. trying to hint at it, but I don't want to try and put it in there because I don't have the, the time or the space. And it's really a pretty, pretty idiosyncratic vision of the apocalypse that is really meant to to foreground what is interesting about a, a small number of characters so mm -hmm. it was how can we really quickly establish these facts and this mood um with as little information as possible um so we don't have to do the panning around um with the with the camera in the way that they do in movies right so i don't have to have anderson cooper explain it yes uh, and i was constantly bringing more of that in and then cutting it out and finding the parts that worked for me and looking for ways to get back out of it. Because I, I really felt that pressure in revision and I, I really wanted to avoid it. Mm. I would love to hear you talk about the timing um, because it's a very tight, they have the dream in January, I think. Yeah. Um, about the world ending in November and very, I think they very quickly give up. <laughs> 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 they just very quickly accept that um that the world is ending and and you know that the the details that you read with the teacher just sleeping or leaving her head on the desk or pretending um and there are scenes where um Mott and her mom go to the store and there's just carnage and you know vehicles completely right, the torn bus, up and right I, I would love to hear from you like as you were plotting this and deciding on timing what made you decide okay, it's, it's just January to November. Um, you know, like, why didn't, why didn't you give yourself like time before? Um, what, what about that? Like quick timing appealed to you with this novel? Yeah. Well, so there were a lot of like little emotional decisions and like things I wanted to avoid that, that made a lot of those choices for me. So just for example, 
the world ends in November and not December because ending in the last month of the year seems kind of, I don't know, it, it just feels very neat, right? Mm-hmm. It feels like it's happening on our calendar, mm-hmm. which is not what's supposed to be happening here. This is supposed to be very much coming from the outside. Mm-hmm. So I didn't want it to be something that rounded off that nicely, but I did want it to be a time when things are getting cold and October is really too early for that. Um, so we were in November. Also, November has a nice sound to it. The world ending in November feels right, just like as a as a sonic issue um, in a way that like the world ending in March. Of course, it doesn't end in March. <laughs> that's, that's nothing. Um, so like that, that's where our, our ending is. And then I want it to be within a year because I want the, the timing to be pretty tight. Right. Like I don't want the list, the reader to feel that they have a lot of time before things and, and there's also relatively early, I honestly forget, I think it starts, I think the book starts in um, March May. or May. It, it moves to May really quickly if it's not. Oh, you're May. right. I think it moves to May really quickly. The reason I did that was to immediately establish like, not only do we not have much time, but I'm going to jump ahead in time unpredictably. So you will always have less than you think you do. Mm. Um, and that used to be really foregrounded. There was a version of this book where every time I changed months, that was like a, a whole page was just the name of the, the new month. Um, but so that's that's why those things happened. Um, it begins. So the dream is in the is in the past um, action when the book starts and uh, it's in January because um it needed to be in the same year, in my opinion, for the reasons I described. But also I think it's January 9th. For again, the reason that I didn't want it to be based on our calendar, I wanted it to be arbitrary. And one of the weird things, nobody ever talks about this when they, when they talk to me about this book, but um, it, in my mind, when I say the world is going to end in November, it means any time at all in November, right? Mm-hmm. And the, there's uncertainty throughout the whole book, but no one reading the book thinks that's what that means. Everyone reading the book thinks it's going to be November 1st. So that's mm. what it is. <laughs> I, didn't want, I didn't want to say November 1st. Um, I didn't want to say November 3rd. Like the date also sounded lame to me. But it was like, okay, if I know that people are just going to assume November 1st, so we'll just we'll just do that. And the other thing that happened coincidentally as a result of that was that means that the last uh, night on earth uh, before the world ends is Halloween, which I didn't even realize until I was a third of the way through the book. And I was like, holy shit, <laughs> that's very convenient. <laughs> so like all of these decisions were just like little things. I was, I didn't want it to be nine months because I didn't want it. Like there's already a lot of motherhood stuff in here. And I didn't want it to be like entirely about like the, you know, gestation of a, of a child being how we structure this. Um, so it was just like, I avoided a million things that I didn't want to do. And then I ended up with the structure that we had. I love how that answer, Mike, showed so many instinctual moves by you. But then also within there were so many, you know, realizations and further decisions uh, that were triggered by the initial instinctual ones that came within editing. It was really kind of a beautiful answer because it it showed so much of the process of of crafting this book did a lot of the making of drowning practice feel similar to you was it the kind of thing where you were working very instinctually and then coming back with kind of a different mindset or were you a little bit more rigorous with an outline you know on a more macro level yeah um so i can't outline um i've tried and every time I've tried the the project uh, that I was outlining has failed miserably. What I do mm. instead of outlining is I will, as soon as I have a good idea for some part of the book, I will try to write it. Um, so like there was a moment I was about, I want to say I was 40, somewhere between 40 and 60% done with the first draft. And I had no idea what was going to happen at the end of the book, despite the fact that's very important. Um, so, uh, I was walking, I was walking downtown with, uh, with my partner, with Tracy and, and I had this dumb idea for the stupidest thing I could do to end the book possible. Um, and I, and I, but then I felt like really emotionally powerfully about that. It was like, I actually want that to be that. Can I get away with it? Mm. And I decided the answer was yes. And so then I wrote just a little bit of that in the document. So like, that's about as much planning there's definitely like structural instincts, like the ones that I kind of talked about in that answer, but like really what the thing that works for me is I have to, 
I have to not do anything that doesn't feel good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and whatever's left is a book, hopefully. <laughs> like <laughs> if I don't do anything that I think sucks, um, then, then eventually, you know, you, you make that decision of times you, you get a book. Um, they're definitely like the revision was really important. And I should say that, that my agent and, and uh, Alex's agent, um, Monica was a huge help to me in that. And she helped me revise this book so much and is so important to the structural success and did a lot of that, like going back and thinking through the structure of it in a way mm. that I'm not always great at on my own. Um, I think I learned a lot. I think I'm I think I'm better as a result of that process. And I'm hoping that the things I write in the future, I'll need less guidance on that. But she was a huge part of that, that second step of going back and saying like, what the hell happened here actually? <laughs> Cause I was just trying to get to the end of it. I was just like, I have to, I have to finish a book. I have to write something. I'm, I'm sad. Uh, this is the one I can write at the moment. And, and so that's just what I did. I relate so much to that idea of digging a hole and like making possibly the reckless decision or the decision that initially is like, ah, can I get away with that? That I relate to that so much, Mike, because I feel like a lot of the projects that have felt the best to me that I've gone the distance with are ones where it's like, all right, what is like the dumbest thing I can do here? And yeah. like, can I, can, like, can I actually get away with this? And I think there's something so, um, it charges the experience of coming to like the desk every day because you're like, fuck, I really got to work to make this happen. Like I really, I, I haven't actually heard a lot of people come on the show and articulate it that way, but I really relate to that. No, I was just going to ask, is it dumb in terms of like, it sounds lame to you at first, or is it dumb in that? Holy shit. This is going to create a lot of work. Yes. The latter for me, just like, I, I would love to hear your answer, Mike, but just like, this is like, a bad decision. This is not like the, uh, the marketable smart decision what I'm about Mm. to do here, but this feels charged somehow. I don't know. Yeah. I think for me, um, like I've literally said for years that what I do uh, to come up with whenever a book sticks, whenever I actually finish one, the reason that I, that I managed it is that I found something I found like the dumbest idea I could be working on in that moment. Like just the stupidest thing I could be doing with my time. But, but and stupid, I stupid it. how? Like stupid in terms of like you yeah. think it's cheesy or lame or or, or I think it's how. a I think it's about risking shame and embarrassment. You know, people okay. talk about totally. the importance of risking sentimentality. And I think that's true. I think that you do need to risk that to to reach your highest heights in a lot of cases. But for me, like the things that I write about that feel the most true to me and the most, um, I mean, the most, the most useful to other people, right. The most interesting for an audience are the things that are just humiliating. Um, (laughs) and so for me to get the, the book that is the best book I can write, I need to write something that if it doesn't work, I'm going to look the person across from me in the eye who's asking me like, what the fuck did you do here? I'm going to be like, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I I tried. So it's like you're shooting your, your ultimate shot. Yeah. 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 Okay. I'll tell I, you I, actually I, I like, I, so I can, I can talk about this without spoiling the ending because it's like so um, orthogonal to what actually happens in the, the end of the book. But I'll, I'll tell you the way that I, the thing that that ending comes from is when I was a, a little kid, I grew up essentially in the Arthur Jordan YMCA in Indianapolis, uh, where my mom worked a bajillion hours a week all the time. And they had an indoor pool and they had an outdoor pool. Terrible swimmer, uh, but I can float uh, because I That's grew great. up. You, you go. It's such a mic line right there. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> um but so like we would we would uh you know I did anything decent at the YMCA I was a part of it because like I I needed to be because it was where I was all the time because I was homeschooled um and so they would do these movie nights where um they would they would project uh like a Disney movie on the wall in the indoor pool and it would be kind of dark because of that and you'd float around with your family and um, you'd, you'd watch the movie. And so we watched The Little Mermaid that way. And just the process of getting ready for that as a family and then getting into the pool and then floating around in the pool in the dark while The Little Mermaid was playing was 
it, it, it is an emotional texture man. that I would do anything to capture in a book. Oh, and I think man. I got part of it in the ending. And you see what I mean? Like it's orthogonal yeah. to what happens yeah. there. Yeah. But when I thought like, could the book end there in a sense, God. I was like, that I is... have to write the book to make that happen. Beautiful. I absolutely love that. And as Lindsay and I were who, talking about the ending right before we got on with you, Lindsay was I going read it, over I the made, final pit. Yeah. I made him listen to me read it. Um, wow. uh, so that should entice all our listeners go get this book. And as someone who t- takes her children to swim lessons and took them to the YMCA forever for swim lessons, there's already like some, like the ghosts of swimmers past are like yeah. just thick in the chlorine fog in that area anyway. Like the, like, the wet tile and the like the murmurs and the splashing it's like there's already like an emotional funk <laughs> like mm-hmm. in every i feel ymca pool and then to <laughs> add that like beautiful i i love that i'm so i'm so glad you shared that with us yeah i want to like, hear you mentioned when you were writing this book you said i'm sad i need to write this is the book i can write yeah is is mm-hmm. that like your main motivating emotion that gets you really into what you're writing is sadness. It was more when I wrote this. So like uh, my, my sister, Laura said something um, a long time ago that really touched me about my fiction, which is that I, I write the saddest thing, (laughs) whatever, whatever you can think of that is the saddest thing in a given scenario. That's, that's what I try to write. And it, it was just such a sweet thing to say. It's not strictly, I want to say it's not the truest. And I, you know, like doing like interviews and stuff about this book, I always like have to watch myself when I talk about this because I, I don't think the book is a miserable slog and I don't want to make no. it sound like it. No, it's not. It's not at all. It's not. But, but like when I, when I wrote it, I was miserable. I was just the saddest I've ever been in a really like, it was, it was, it was biological as much as anything. There was all sorts of stuff going on, but it was like, I had written several things that just didn't work. I just kept trying and trying and trying. And, um, Fat Man and Little Boy was out at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had another book between that was a bajillion words that sucked and will never be published. And then I tried to write some more. I tried other things and they kept not working. And it was in the basement talking to, to Tracy about my just misery and frustration when I had, I, I just said the sentence out loud. I don't remember the sentence exactly, but it was something like, you know, um, what if there was a little girl who wanted to write a book before the world ended? Cause that was kind of how I felt mm-hmm. uh, a little girl who needed to write a book before the world ended. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, and then I said like, Oh, and she, she really looks up to her mom because her mom wrote one is like, okay, yeah, that's a premise. And then, um, and then they're being chased by the dad. Cause I mean, that was, that was how I came to that. It was like, well, where's the dad? It's like, oh, well, he, clearly he's the villain. Cause I didn't mention him up till now. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so like, for me, the sadness at the time was like just the dominant fact of life. And like, and it's the, the thing that's been so weird about the time since is so, like, I wrote this uh, before, like the main drafting was done before Trump was a thing. Um, it had representation uh, right before he got elected. Um, so it was basically locked. Um, it was well before COVID. So like ever since, you know, we went out to submit, it didn't work and I had to revise it. And then we, we went out again. Uh, we went out again in like March. Um, I think it was April of 2020. So pandemic is like, it's a new thing. Holy shit. That's when you went out with this book. Yes. Oh my God. (laughs) It was so bad. But it also seems like such a COVID book in a way, not that it, and I don't mean, I don't mean to, to minimize, no, no. but you know what I'm saying? Obviously. Yes. I mean, yeah. Yeah. yeah, but back then, you know, <laughs> no, everyone was like, don't do this. Right. Yeah. Like, even more than they are now. God, that's was, fucking crazy, Mike. That's what you went out with this. Yeah. And so the rejections oh. from editors, I was so sympathetic. I mean, I'm always sympathetic whenever anybody rejects me, but like, especially when we went out with this one, because the rejections would be like, this seems great. I can't read it. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> um, but so there's been this God. like up and down of like, so that to like get back to the original question a little bit, like, 
So like my, I, at the same time that like the book was going out for submission and failing and I was revising it and then we were getting ready to submit it again and, and all that, I'm going through therapy. I'm on, you know, uh, medication to help improve my moods. And so I reach something approximating what is for me peak mental health right before the pandemic. Oh my God. <laughs> so like, but it, like that stuck, right? Like, so the thing yeah. is in many ways, I am mentally and emotionally the healthiest and happiest I have ever been as the world is just falling apart. And I'm going out here selling this book that is like, what if this is the end? <laughs> and I'm just oh laughing because like I, I have perspective in a way that I didn't. So like for a long time, sadness was a big part of it. And like definitely dealing with sadness was a big part of this. But the other thing for me, um the the emotion that I always go back to actually is fear and that's the thing that I always suggest to people when they if they haven't written a book and they want to write one I always just say write about something that scares the shit out of you because mm. that is an inexhaustible topic you will never get tired of talking about the things that are scary to you so that's really kind of that's that's the impulse that that works for this book and for for others wow. I will say for our listeners who who have not read the book yet um it is a heavy book, but I, I told Mike is a friend of mine in real life, uh, spoiler. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I, I told him basically in the first two pages, I was like, I'm laughing out loud immediately. Like, this is a book where you're going to be laughing. Um, it is absolutely heavy, but there's a real, there's a real dark humor to it in a, in a wonderful way. So definitely not a slog. Absolutely. I mean, David is so funny, even as he is so fucking awful and terrifying. Um, I really want to hear how you got into the mindset of a 13 year old girl. Mm. Um, and, and on the same token, I, I so admire how awful you let Lid be mm. and how also how fierce her love shines through and certain important moments. Um, so I really, I want to hear from you, like how you got into their minds in order to write them so well. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's like a bunch of contradictory answers for that. So like one thing that I believe I, when people talk about writing across difference as though it were no big deal, I think those people are full of shit, but I do think that it's, <laughs> I think that it's not a big, it's a big deal in practical terms. Right. So like, it's not actually that hard for me to write a persuasive um, middle-class educated white lady because I spend a lot of time around those people and I spend a lot of time around you know young people too so I know how they talk and I know they talk to each other um the more different from me those people get the more challenging it is and that's like a real technical issue right like the I think that it would be hard for me to write the same story about a black mother and black daughter because um I don't know how uh I don't know how the members of, of a black family talk to each other when I'm not around. Mm -hmm. Right. But I do know how the, the members of my family talk to each other. Um, and I, I know how they talk when I'm around and, and I have a pretty good idea how they talk when I'm not around. So like, I don't, I don't think that it's actually hard to write kids or to write women or to write people that are different from you. But I do think that you have to, have some self-awareness about like what your level of, of knowledge and familiarity and intimacy with, with those people is in, in your life. Um, so like it, the truth, like for me, these characters are similar enough to me and to people that I know that I would have had to psych myself out to fuck it up. Um, I mm -hmm. wasn't thinking about how does it feel to be a mother or a woman? Um, how does it feel to be a, a, a 13 year old girl because thinking about it in that way would create a, a level of uh, distance. distance between yeah. me and them. They, it, it objectifies them without meaning to right? Like I, mm -hmm. I think it's a, I think it's a well-meaning instinct, but it's not, it's, I, th I think that it fucks up way more men writing about women and girls than it, than it helps. Um, so like from that perspective, that wasn't, that, that wasn't where the, the stress was for me. Um, I think that, sorry, I'm thinking about this more. So I feel like I don't have a full answer for you. Um, 
I think that when I when I wasn't sure what to do with the characters or how to um, depict them in a way that would help the book, I leaned on the fact that I love them very much, hmm. um, which is not that's not how I feel about every fictional character I write. And I, that's not like a prerequisite for me to write about a person, for me to imagine them and, and love them. But I did in this book, I did love these characters very much. And they were definitely, I was thinking about people that I loved while I wrote them. Um, and so. That was going to be my, my next, my follow-up question, which was like, is, was there a touchstone or something when you were going to write from Mott's point of view or Lid's point of view, something that like immediately puts you in their mindset. And I love that you're saying it's love. Yeah. I was like, the reason that Lid can be kind of awful is that I, I know what I love about her. And so I don't feel at risk of hurting her by, by writing about her. I feel like even if the, the reader turns against her a little bit, I still know why I think she's great. Um, and I still have time and patience for her. So I wasn't worried about that. I maybe should have been. Uh, it, will not, it will not shock you to, to hear, I'm sure, that in, um, in revision managing the reader's response to uh my my uh my lady protagonist was was an issue um but i just they they love each other enough that i almost the reader can can kind of get on board with that or not right like that was the other thing i was counting on was that these characters care about each other enough that their investment is is sufficient Uh, like oh but to to get back to what you were asking just now though, that follow-up was um, I definitely for, for Mott, I was sort of writing fan fiction for a young version of my partner um, sort of based on just like a projection, right? Like I didn't, we didn't meet until um, they were 20, 20, <laughs> ni- 19. 19. <laughs> but, um, is Tracy right there? Is Tracy no, correcting you right there? No, okay. no, I'm doing math. Um, have to tell I was 18. Right? So Tracy was 19 at that point. Could have been 20, but I don't think was. Um, but uh, so, yeah, I was I was writing some fan fiction about a young idealized version of Tracy in some ways. And I definitely think about my mom a lot when I write um, mothers in, in any story. And there's a kind of similar character in Fat Man and Little Boy. Um, I think, you know, you're like in the revision and worrying about how the reader's going to react to a mother who makes bad choices, Yes, you know, but also really good choices. All of that is necessary to make the ending as profound as it is. And I don't want to give it away, but um, it's a wallop. The ending is an absolute heartbreaking, beautiful walloping. And it, it doesn't work unless you made the choices you made for lid. So I yeah. hope readers understand that. I hope. And if they don't fuck them. <laughs> <laughs> well, if they got to the end of the book, <laughs> yeah. then the relationship is complete. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, if they're mad at that point, then like, great. You still read the whole book. This is awesome. I, I need that quote on our next round That's of merch. Good. If you made it yeah. to the end of the book, then the relationship is complete. That's wonderful. Goodbye. <laughs> really is that's all i i mean that's more than you get from most readers right like most readers yeah. buy the book and they read a few pages and then they stop and that's a fine relationship too right like i'm that way with a lot of books i buy for whatever reason you know i, I give them a shot and then they don't work out and that was the transaction that i had with that writer and i feel fine about that so like i feel fine about this too um yeah. but yeah i don't know i like them <laughs> yeah i do too i really do and i i so appreciate seeing a mother like that because Mm. um their lives are hard and they were hard before the dream you know um and and i think it's important that we see mothers being human um and and in that same token i i marked there's a moment where mott's asking a lot of questions about david and really asking her mother well is he actually bad or is this just you And that's something that I haven't seen in a lot of fiction, Mm -hmm. this notion of, um, because it happens a lot in divorce, right? Where a parent is telling you, well, you know, the other parent is bad because of X, Y, Z. And so you might 
not trust that as the child because you haven't seen it with your own eyes. Um, and Lid just asking her to take her word for it. I, I just really appreciated that. I really, um, I feel like that's not, that's not in enough fiction. Um, and it even like, it even made me question Lid, which I felt bad about later. But I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that too, that, that, that little moment where Mott isn't entirely believing her mother about what she's saying about her father. Yeah. So I think there's, um, I think part of that scene for me is just the fact that children are even, even once they hit the age of 13, believe it or not, uh, is so mean. Right. And that's like, it's a, it's a cliche that the, the cruelty of children, but it is, it is so real that like for, for, for a kid being denied a parent is potentially such a, not, not every kid's going to feel that way. Right. But like, it is, it is so hard for them and they feel it as such a personal insult, I think, um, because they're, they're being deprived of like one of the two or three things the world tells them they're guaranteed. Um, I, I did just, I, I felt that that was true about the character that she would be unkind there. And I do think too, that it's, it's important for me that the reader is given, like, I think any reader is going to have some questions about Liv's behavior, but I wanted to provide a little bit of guidance as far as like, here are the things that I think are worth being concerned about. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so Mott's maybe doing some, some work for me there, help me out a little bit. Um, I think too, though, like, I, I grew up with parents that really should have divorced, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> really, really should have. And they did when I was, uh, 32, Great. <laughs> like that was, Perfect. that was when it happened. Right. <laughs> and so like, I have, I, I am very familiar with the experience of that ambivalence of on the one hand, and I feel like a lot of my fiction comes from, from this experience and a lot of, not just with, with my parents, but with, just with people in general is like, on the one hand, I feel intense obligation toward you and I feel intense love for you. And I feel like I need to take care of you and I need you in my life. But on the other hand, this is a lot. <laughs> this is really too much to ask of me. And that's just kind of how like family feels to me though, is like, I feel like being in a family with another person is like society has said to you, um, congratulations, this person is your problem. Any person could be your problem, but this person is. Oh my God. Um, but it's, it's like really important too, right? Like I feel like everybody should be my problem. So like in some ways having the arbitrary like distinction of this is your parent, so you need to care about them. In, in some ways that gives you opportunities to, I think, be a better person than, than you get with other people that you don't have that prompting with at all. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, like, come on. <laughs> Yeah. I, I had, a, I have a friend who, um, who just him and his partner decided not to have kids. And the reason why is because they only wanted to go through it once. And he was like, but I know when I'm old, I'm going to be insane. And I don't want my kid to be alone having to deal with that. Oh my God. <laughs> so he just decided wow. not to have kids at all. <laughs> right. I know this person thinks a lot like I do. <laughs> yeah, I was, yeah. Say, was that your buddy, Mike? <laughs> yeah. Oh, his name is Mike McGinnis. Yeah. I don't have kids and it's because um I mean I love children. Um I love hanging out with them. I like I like being with other people's kids and and like, you know, babysitting and helping out and whatever. Um but I can't handle the stress of that responsibility. I've always said if I were if I were wealthy, I would have kids. Because then But then you easy. wouldn't be wealthy anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I need to be really rich <laughs> to have kids. That's that's uh, that's the strength of character that I have. <laughs> Mike, I wanted to go back uh, to you know an earlier iteration, earlier life of this book when you were drafting and you know first submitting. I remember you mentioning one time that at one point you were thinking about taking the book kind of in a totally different direction um, with the after the initial round of submission. Could you talk a little bit about that and, and kind of how you navigated through that period and ended up at, at the draft we have in our hands now? I may not know what you're talking. Oh, I'm sorry. About. Yeah. I, you know what? I thought that, I thought that it, 
one time you said like you were considering taking it in like a, a lot more of a traditional genre direction. Okay, yes. Okay, yes. I do know what you mean. Okay. So there was a moment where this is this is like my career. This is my whole life is this problem um, mm. is it's not really a science fiction or a fantasy or a horror book or whatever. Right. Right. Um, right. But it's not the most, I think it's fine to sell this as literary fiction. That's ultimately what they oh, do. hundred percent. But um, there was a moment where on that first round of submissions, we just weren't, we weren't able to make it happen. And Monique was saying, I haven't really done science fiction, but maybe we should, maybe we should try to sell this to a, to tour or whatever. Right. right. Um, and I wouldn't have a problem with that. I've always felt like in some ways, if I could just make up a name for an elf and not feel like shooting myself in the head, that would be <laughs> where I should go. But the problem is I come up, you know, if, I, if I'm J.R.R. Tolkien and I write Elrond, the next thing I do is kill myself. <laughs> and not because that's bad. I just don't have, I don't have right. the confidence or whatever. And so like, for me, it's like, I feel like as a practical matter, I need to stay out of those shelves because I'm not going to be able to reliably deliver the elf names. Um, but we did, we did. <laughs> that's the main, it. that's the main issue. Anytime you're d- trying to dive in to fantasy is the elf names. And that's what, that's what really hobbles all of us. <laughs> I love that answer. I mean, naming shit is where all of my genre fiction, like my straight genre fiction, when I like every, every couple of years, I'll be like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to sell out. I'm going to make a bidillion dollars, a bidillion uh, using, <laughs> using elves. And then I have to name one and I just delete the docket. Like I can't see always for me. It's when I realize I have to draw a map. Oh no. live. And I'm like, oh shit, I have to, like the Shire, I got to figure out where the, like the oh, other. Lindsay, you have friends who is. can draw. What are you talking about? You just outsource that. You say, all right, there's a town, there's another town. I know, put but a then, you know, here. then more things get exposed and you're like, you said the Shire was over by the quarry. <laughs> yes. The quarry yeah. is over by the spider den, you know? <laughs> and you're like, it's also oh. boring. None of that is why you got into this mess. So, but okay. So you guys considered that. Yeah. And then what did, did you just reach a point, Mike, where you're like, no, I, I have a sense like editorially where, where we're going to go. And Monica was, you know, helping editorial. How did you kind of get through that period where you guys were potentially a little bit unsure about how to, how to take the next step? Well, you know, uh, to very inside baseball is an answer, but like, I think that she wasn't super confident because I don't know if this is still true, but at the time she said she hadn't really sold books to those markets and didn't really know them. And I haven't either. So it was like, well, this isn't like 100% working. So we could both completely change everything about our whole deal to try to make it work. Or I could go back and make some adjustments. Right. <laughs> so I, I did the one that sounded easier. I love it. I love it. Um, I want to talk about your amazing author photo. <laughs> so good. We were talking about it, it before so the, the show. Yeah. Um, so what, what would you like to know? <laughs> Maybe we'll just describe it. Everyone yeah. can go to your website. It's it's in black and white. It was snowing that day. Yeah. You have a the lovely shirt important. on. Yeah. So you do have like flowing locks as if you write fantasy. Yes. Um, which I, I don't currently, um, but oh, the hair okay. is shorn. Um, so that was, that was during, let's see, that would be like January, 2021, I think. Um, so it was definitely like the height of the pandemic. I'm not going indoors with anyone ever, um, <laughs> except for Tracy. And, you know, I need, I need an author photo and it's, it's snowing and I've been putting it off because I was hoping that things would get a little bit more normal and I'd feel comfortably being indoor, indoors with a person. And, and so I decide, well, since I can't do that, um, let's embrace this and really steer into it and do the most COVID photo possible. <laughs> um, so I have my COVID hair um, that I think that's after Tracy gave me my first trim of the entire pandemic. Oh, damn. Um, <laughs> But it's quite long there. Um, and and I am the heaviest I've ever been. Um, it looks good probably. on you, though. It looks good on you, <laughs> Thank bud. you. It does. I'm, I'm serious. I'm a king. 
Yeah. I, no, I, I'm, I was struck by it at how amazing it is, how handsome you look and you look great. It, yeah. <laughs> I'm serious. It stopped me in my tracks and I brought it up with Alex. It's such a great picture. It fits the book too. Yeah. It, it has a quality to it that I think matches drowning practice. Yeah. Man, was, I'm, if I pick yeah. that book up and I look at that guy, I'm like, all right, I'm trusting this guy. to. Take all right. I'm fucking reading this go. thing. I I'm guess. Yeah, here we go. <laughs> that was sort of the plan was like, at least if my body has been destroyed by two years of my terrible <laughs> pandemic lifestyle, the most I've ever drunk, the most sugar I've ever eaten, the most, you know, just I've ever tortured myself. Um, <laughs> that's going to really set a good tone for this apocalyptic fiction. <laughs> so we went outdoors yes. and we took the photo. Yes. whatever it's ending in november just fucking eat up exactly that was my logic at the time i literally would yes. just say what fuck this and then i would drink whatever was in front of me and that was two years of my life and oh my in God. some ways we're still there but i was a little more under can't really i had to take an author photo recently and i completely froze and didn't know what to do because i don't i also don't leave my home or talk to anyone yeah. And, and like, I have a friend who's a photographer, but like the, the notion of like asking her and then coming up with a date for us to meet up or her to come to my home. And then like her telling me that my shoulders are too hunched. Uh-huh. Pictures like, are great. What are I was you growling. About? Well, They're anyway, so good. Cause I propped my phone up on a vase in my bedroom and just pressed <laughs> click the button myself. They're awesome. And when I have to tell them who took the picture, I don't know what to say. I'm going to say Mike McGinnis. Okay. That's perfect. what you should say. Yeah. I'm going to say a different answer every time they ask. <laughs> 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 what to do. <laughs> they're hard. They're, they're tough. All their photos uh, tough. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they thing, don't matter. That's the hardest part. Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I guess. I mean, I obsess over mine. Yeah. I do and, too, really? Yeah. And I feel like I always want to look the way I look because I feel like some authors don't look like that, you know, like they don't look yeah. like their photo. And I want to, I want to be honest about how I look, but I want to look the best that I can look at this moment yeah. in time, you know? <laughs> well, yours are great. I mean, objectively great. I Thank told you. you that like, yes, you did. And I believe you, I trust you. Um, I haven't seen your recent one, but I want to get in on this affirmation. <laughs> okay. I'll send them to you. I'm I'll sure it's good. Them. Previous ones have been good. Yeah. I, I want to end this by plugging your podcast that you do with Tracy. Yes. Oh, nice. Um, gift horse. Yeah. Tell us about, t- tell us about gift horse. So gift horse is a podcast where Tracy and I uh, meet once a week and we exchange fictional gifts. So we'll come up with a theme. Like one time it was dinosaurs. Uh, one time it was inflatables. Um, <laughs> one time, I don't remember what the theme was, but I got Tracy a laser tag arena. Um <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, we, we give each other uh, gifts and then we try to give each other the best gift in that theme. And then we discuss and debate and, and argue. And uh, it's very erotically charged. <laughs> That's my one promise to you is it's the sexiest podcast you'll, you'll hear. Um, but yeah, and we're, we're about to get our, we'll have our 52nd episode soon when we will exchange swords for the second time. The first oh. time we exchanged swords was a failure because we take it so seriously neither of us was truly happy with our sword so we're gonna we're gonna Quick choose new swords for each other yeah what was the name of the elf that gave you the sword the name of the elf that gave me the sword hurry hurry come up with a good one kalong bong oh my god kalong bong i love it yeah I listened to the most recent episode just a little bit of it and um tracy was giving you shit because you don't consider the the listener yes and it really terrified me because i don't know if alex and i consider the listener either we definitely don't i so am please thank tracy so for that. shocked when people are listening to this i'm like i cannot tell you how surprised i am to hear that i have a podcast <laughs> that is very very you God, (laughs) you got to end every episode with a kiss for the listener. That's that's the main concession we make is we we blow them a kiss. Oh, oh, I like that. What a good idea. I mean, Alex and I will never in a thousand years do that. No, but we'll come up with something. Yes, definitely. Would you like me to blow a kiss at your listener? Because I I definitely would love for you to do that. (laughs) That was beautiful. I think the one, I think one time 
there was Alex going at us haters. <laughs> I hope you do. <laughs> so that was like one one way that we could similar to a kiss. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for writing this book. I absolutely loved it. Same. And I cannot wait for everyone to read it and freak out about it. Yeah, thank Total you blast. again thank for, you, Mike. for having me. Uh, like I said, I'm a, I'm a real boy now. Um, <laughs> I'll be a real boy again when the book comes out. And then I'll be a real boy a few more times later this year for other accomplishments. I, I love to be real. I'm so glad. And I, I, I hope that's because the, an elf has granted you a wish um, and that that elf keeps granting you your wish. We're basically writing a fantasy novel on this yeah. episode. Yeah. Um, so stay tuned, everyone. I like your wallpaper. God, look, look at the look at this. What is it? What? I just have I just have great under eye action going in my life. <laughs> like it just like I don't know. I, mean, I have a lazy eye that's getting progressively lazier. Oh my god, I do too. Yeah. Does it come out when you get uh, tired? Oh yes. Me too. Yeah, I and I find myself kind of, like it's kind of kind of hot. Like oh good I feel, okay I feel good. confident about myself when I get when that I gets lazy I'm like fucking lean in <laughs> do you feel that way or no no i'm like i need better concealer no and i find myself Mm-mm. it's so annoying i find myself like that eyebrow goes down like i'm um <laughs> like grimacing with that one eyebrow throughout the day and then i'll like push it up because i'm so annoyed that oh it's down God. and i'm sick of it that's funny i yeah, yeah i don't know i don't know either I don't know. Uh, yeah, Drowning Practice, Mike McGinnis, killing it. It's a great book. It really is. It's a big swing. And uh, Mike did a great job. It's a great book. I forgot to ask him. It's on Echo. I love Echo. I wanted to ask him. Mm-hmm. Mike, come back on and tell us how it is to work with Echo. Right. Because um, that's great. I don't think we've had an Echo book on the show. Is that true? Really it feels true. Know. Yeah, I feel like we would have asked. Mm-hmm. What I what we said to Mike, I I wasn't actually kidding. Like I really do forget that people are listening to this, and I'm sh- <laughs> like I'm absolutely shocked when uh, somebody's like, "Oh yeah, I liked it." I'm like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" I know. Or like sometimes people come on and they're like, "Yeah, yeah, I know." And then you talked about this with so and so and blah blah blah, and I'm like, "Oh, <laughs> what? Sorry." <laughs> like I am so sorry because I did not prepare for that. <laughs> Like, you know, when I sounded like a fucking idiot, that's because that's who I am. Uh, I woke up and didn't know what state I'm in. Who are you? <laughs> the world is ending for you in November, yeah. I guess. Yeah, exactly. Do you um, want to know who stared at like NHL statistics for defensemen through the first 60 games for 25 minutes? That's the guy you're listening to. Like, Why don't you have that podcast? Because I don't fucking, I don't. No, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I just want to watch the ball, watch the games. Uh, yeah. Um, Business okay. real quick. Yes. Don't forget, everyone. We have merch, mm-hmm. and we're going to be adding more designs and special mm-hmm. stuff. So stay mm-hmm. tuned. Maybe even something centered in the middle of the shirt for our yeah. friend Jay Robert Lennon. John, love you, John. We love you, John. Um. Yeah, so keep 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 your eyes peeled for that. And we thank everyone so much for already buying a lot of stuff. You guys are going to be the talk of the town in your towns. <laughs> going to be the talk of the town in your goddamn house. <laughs> I've been wearing my light hoodie ever since nice. I got it today. And ha- it's great. Nice. We haven't got ours yet, but Britt and I just got the same thing, so... We're going to look like fucking lunatics. I'm going to send you a really good picture. I'm going to send you, I'm going to be locked in. I'm going to have, you know. I love when you threaten that you're going to be locked into something. It's my favorite. (laughs) I absolutely love it. I can lock in. I know you can. Okay. I know. That's why I love it. When you say you're locked in, you're locked in. That's right. That's right. I finished Sarah Lipman's jerks. She's coming next week. Great cover. 
such a good cover. I I am so jealous. Such a great title, such a great cover. Mm -hmm. And the book is awesome. It's Mason Jar Press. I think she might have a book out on Tortoise next. I feel like I, you know, I've been reading a lot of friends manuscripts recently and they have been kind of uniformly impressive and devastating. (laughs) Who are you thinking of? Uh, I'm reading our friend Justin Taylor's new novel. Ooh. And uh, Emily has a new memoir I'm reading that is oh God, I really want to read that. Man, I want to read both those books. I can't wait yeah, for sure those to will. be in the world. Definitely. Um, yeah, that's it. That's it. It was a good one. It was so fun to talk to Mike. I was so excited about this one. Yeah, his his book is great. And Fat Man and Little Boy is so great. I haven't read it. I got to pick it up. Oh, it's it's awesome. Um, can't go wrong with the old Mikey McGinney. <laughs> <laughs> that, That's yeah, what I mean, his friends call him. There's our opening right there, right? <laughs> can't go wrong with the old Mikey McGinney. <laughs> Mikey McGinney. All right. All right, bud. Goodbye. I'm a Writer Butt is recorded by Alex Hickley and me, Lindsay Hunter, in our respective basements. Editing by Lindsay Hunter. Music by Max Loop. Yeah, yeah.